Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 695 with Sue Kendrick Singh Cassidy. Sue Kendrick's got some great tips. If you are feeling kind of nervous when it comes to taking risks, she will reduce your nerves and increase your results. You'll learn one, two easy ways to build your risk-taking muscle. Two, how to stop the fear of failure from holding you back. And three, one question to help you make smarter, more calculated risks. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to apps that we mentioned here, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP695. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, check out some cool stuff like being able to search the full text of all of these transcripts or the Gold Nugget email summaries, which gives you a two-minute read on the key takeaways from each guest, as well as unlocking the whole vault of all of those summaries. That's the Gold Nuggets. And here is Sukhinder's story. Sukhinder Singh Cassidy is a leading technology executive and entrepreneur, board member, and investor with 25 years of experience founding and helping to scale companies, including Google and Amazon. She's served as president of StubHub and as a member of eBay's executive leadership team. Sukhinder is the founder and chairman of The Boardist, a premium talent marketplace that helps diverse leaders get discovered for board and executive opportunities and she's the author of choose possibility big thanks to sukinder for sharing her wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors check them out one sponsor to check out is linkedin jobs did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome and with a fresh year perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing well linkedin jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free i love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools linkedin isn't just another job board no 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 LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Sukinder. Sukinder, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your perspectives associated with your book, Choose Possibility. Can you tell us what's the big idea here? <laughs> the big idea is that we all have a rather terrible relationship with risk-taking and a rather, I would say, ill-conceived view of what risk really looks like. And so the book was written to help us reframe risk for what it is, really the pursuit of possibility, and offer really pragmatic ways to rethink how you approach risk-taking in order for you to be able to unlock more of its benefits. Well, I'll tell you right, right away, the pursuit of possibility feels a lot better than the word risk <laughs> just in the gut as you feel the words side by side and, and, and their valence. So very cool. Now, your own career has had some interesting possibilities and, and risks and mm -hmm. uh, wild successes and, and disappointments. Can you give us a little bit of of you for, for some of the, the wildest rides and, and how you've thought about risk and, and what happened for you? 
Sure, sure. Well, as you noted, I consider myself someone who has taken hundreds of risks in my career. I have been at large companies uh, when they were growing, like Amazon and Google. I've been the CEO of large companies like StubHub, but I've also started three of my own, been an early stage investor, mid-stage investor, a late-stage investor, a board member at startups, a board member at large public companies. And so I feel like I've navigated and traversed risk-taking throughout my career. And if you said sort of what are some of the wildest rides, well, they include quitting my job as a president at Google when I was arguably among the top 15 executives in the company and going to a startup as a CEO and, and honestly having it fail ferociously as a career move within six months, <laughs> only to have to figure out how to recover and navigate my way to my next career choice and ultimately find the unlock for myself in terms of the rewards I took for the risks I took. As you can imagine, that career left me feeling like risk-taking is not what people think it is. And the reward relationship with risk is anything but linear, which is how we tend to conceive it. Well, I absolutely wanted to ask about that specific point. So let's roll with it. So the, the risk-reward relationship is not linear. What does it look like? I think of that relationship between risk-taking and reward is not only nonlinear, but in some ways, very circuitous. And so let me explain what I mean. When we make a move, any move or take any choice, we, I bet you we're looking for not just one reward, but multiple rewards. We might be making a ch career choice that we're hoping will fulfill us financially, that we're hoping will sort of unlock some outsized career win, like a title change or a step up in responsibilities, and maybe brings us a lot of personal happiness. So like we're, taking, we're making a move that has effectively three choices within it that we're trying to optimize for. Yet when it comes to sort of how things unfold as we execute our way through a choice we've made, the reality is we're measuring it on these three different choices or goals we have, and we won't get the results all at the same time, right? We won't maybe figure out if it's going to be a financial win for several years. We may figure out if it's a happiness win within a year. We may, may or may not achieve the career ambition we wanted in terms of title. And so when you think about all the reasons we take the risk to begin with, the rewards don't unfold in sequence. They don't unfold at the same time. And each reward may have its own relationship to our execution or to the factors that are entirely outside of our control on whether or not we sort of achieve what we originally in intended against that specific goal. So when I say it's nonlinear, I mean that it unfolds at various points in time. Big and little risks don't correlate to the size of the ultimate reward. And so you look at the whole thing and you say, gosh, like whatever you imagined going in, you may or may not achieve it going out. But I bet you that you will still be able to collect the benefits of risk, even if they don't look like the rewards you originally imagined. And that is, I think that is the key, right? How you take risk and make sure that if it's a nonlinear and circuitous relationship, you can still gain benefit from the risks you take and understand what the relationships and the benefits might be every time you take a risk, even if it's not the ones you originally imagined. Well, boy, I think you could chew on that for a while and really get to some some great places. It, it's funny, when I was thinking about a nonlinear relationship between risk and reward, I was just thinking from a strictly like kind of a, a finance thing. It's like as there is a higher standard deviation in the returns yes. of a given asset class, yes, yes. risk, <laughs> there is a higher reward, like percent mm -hmm. money yeah. returned. Percent returned, right? Yes. And so, but as you sort of zoom out and think about kind of the long game and your life and time and how things unfold, it doesn't look like that at all. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So actually, 
let's back away. Let's look at your asset, my, my view versus your view and back away. First of all, there is a thesis that I have in the book that if you actually looked over the extent of your lifetime, you will actually find maybe that linear relationship, but through multiple choices and multiple cycles. So if people were to chart my career, they'd say, wow, Sukinder, there's a pretty linear relationship between risk and reward, right? Because you started at one place and you took a risk and gosh, look where you ended up. But so it looks like a straight line over your lifetime, but really what you're doing is mapping through a bunch of cycles of choices and individual risks and individual rewards, each of which may or may not have worked out. So to your point, it's like a stock pick, right? Any given stock pick may or may not work out. You and I would agree, right? Mm -hmm. When you're building a stock portfolio, what are you trying to do? You're trying to actually make multiple choices. You're diversifying your risks, right? In order to maximize your overall return. By the way, as you keep picking stocks and watching watch pattern matching, I bet you become a more calculated stock picker over time. <laughs> and over the course of a long time frame, let's say 10 years in which you are managing a stock portfolio, you're getting better and better, though never perfect, at picking stocks, diversifying risks, taking mer- parallel risks at the same time. And over the course of that entire period, you may say, wow, there was a relationship between, you know, starting to be a stock picker and my ultimate value of my portfolio portfolio. But that doesn't mean every individual stock you pick worked out. And I think therein is the opportunity, right? And there is therein is sort of the miscalculation of how most people think about risk. Most people think about risk as one mighty choice for one mighty reward. And I think to take your analogy further, you will see the compounding benefits over a long period of time, but it will be an amalgamation of many individual choices or risks taken, each of which may or may not have worked out. That's why I think risk-taking has to become a skill rather than a single event we imagine. Mm-hmm. So think about risk-taking as a skill. Uh, how mm-hmm. do you recommend we go about getting better at the skill of risk-taking? First and foremost, is probably no surprise. I think about starting early and often. I will say to people, you imagine and look at the biggest risk takers in the world and we somehow celebrate their biggest choices and we act like that's the only choice they ever made and that's why they're such a mighty risk taker when in fact most started taking risks long before we knew it and they took risks of different sizes. So if I was to say to you, how did you become good at managing your portfolio or whatever it is you're doing, I bet that it started by doing it early and often. So I say to people, first and foremost, find reasons to take risk in your everyday life, in your everyday career. And most people will say, well, I took a risk. I, I made this choice to go into this career. I, you know, I took a right turn and decided to join a startup. Okay, well, that's one risk, but we have opportunities to take risks every day. I always say to people, you could take the risk to learn something new. You could take the risk to discover more opportunities. You could take the risk certainly to achieve an outsized ambition, or you could take a risk to avoid harm, right? Those are four different reasons we might have to take risks every day. And so I say to people, early and often is the way to really build your risk-taking muscle. The second thing I talk about with people is, you know, many people believe that risk-taking first requires a lot of planning. I don't know. Have you ever seen this, Pete, the person who plans a lot and plans judiciously and plans in great detail before they ever take a risk, right? Because we think the more perfect our plans, the better our risk-taking will be and the more we can control the outcome. And one of the other pieces of advice I say to people when they're trying to get going and just start to take risks is, hey, you know, as opposed to the perfect plan from afar, spend less time planning, create a rough plan, 
And then the most important thing you can do is get proximate to the choices you're thinking about making or the risks you're thinking about taking. If you're thinking about taking a risk to be an entrepreneur and you're in a big company, one of the best ways to do it might first and foremost be get proximate to people who are entrepreneurs. Learn what it looks like to be an entrepreneur. Get proximate by joining a startup, like become an apprentice <laughs> before you make a final choice. And so I think people presume that risk-taking requires a perfect plan. Uh, and instead, I kind of advocate for a rough plan, what I call a whiteboard plan. What's the direction in which you want to head? And before you make your choice, take the little risks to get proximate and closer to the opportunities you seek and learn before making your final choice. Now we're using the phrase take risk a lot. So let's get clear with definitions, shall we? When you say take a risk, what precisely do we mean by that? Well, I think of a risk as anything that has an uncertain outcome All right. in pursuit of a goal. So if you look at the standard definition of risk in Merriam-Webster, it's to avoid injury or harm, right? That's the, that's the kind of risk-taking we all imagine that keeps us from ever acting. If you look at the definition of risk-taking, it talks about literally entering an uncertain situation for the pursuit of a goal. So for me, a risk could be speaking up in a meeting, right? That's ego risk, right? That's psychological risk. It's not financial risk, but why don't people speak in meetings? It's because there's a risk involved to their psyche or to their sense of what others think of them. And then risk-taking obviously follows more classic definitions of you might decide to, as we said, empty the money from your bank account and put it in your first startup. That's a bigger risk, but it's still a risk. So I think risks, I think of risks as micro-actions, medium-sized actions, and larger-sized actions, all of which are uncertain, but they're decisions you make to try and unlock more impact. And what keeps you from doing it is obviously these fears we have, whether they're related to our ego, financial, or kind of personal risk. Oh, yeah. So... Let's talk about the fear and maybe we'll zoom out for a moment and get to a conceptual or theoretical optimal relationship to risk. Yes. Like, is your take that we should neither be fearful and take zero risks nor reckless and just do every nutty thing that we think about? Or what does optimal look like in the realm of risk taking? Sure. Let's, well, let's start with what I call the universal risk-taking equation. All right. So I wanted you to imagine uh, two phrases. They're pretty simple. One is FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. Sure, you know FOMO. Yeah. The other is FOF, fear of failure, right? So many people have mm -hmm. fear of failure. Many people have FOMO. So I think of the universal risk-taking equation. Put this in your head, the one that guides us all. It, says, it goes something like this. If our fear of missing out on something is greater than our fear of failure, we'll likely act right? We'll likely okay. move in the direction of a choice we're contemplating that has some uncertainty. If our fear of failure is greater than our FOMO, we'll likely fail to act, right? It will equal inaction. Mm -hmm. So let's imagine a risk-taking framework that looks like that. First of all, you'll notice two things. In that universal risk-taking equation, there isn't the absence of fear. There are actually two fears that we are managing yeah. at any point in time, right? Our fear of missing out, you know, and, which is a kind of what we would all think of as a positive fear. It's the fear that induces mm -hmm. us to act, you know, in this fear of failure. So if you think about that concept, I think the world largely tells you that if you want to act, you just have to visualize the positive. Keep visualizing the positive, right? Because we're going to ramp our FOMO, right? Makes sense. You're like, hey, if you want to get that risk-taking equation working in your favor to act, just ramp your FOMO. That doesn't really do much for 
the way most people live, which is with a lot of fear. Like, you know, so just visualizing the positive doesn't really do anything to help shrink the denominator in the equation, right? Which is fear of of failure. So you could have a lot of FOMO, like you could have a lot of positive visualization, but if you can't conquer or find a way to shrink your fear, you just won't act, even though you know intellectually that there are all these things you're excited about. So I often say to people, first of all, embrace both fears. I have an executive coach for, you know, that I've worked with for 10 years through a number of my career choices. And he says to me that I, that I think is absolutely right. Most people have a rather immature relationship with what he calls our inner risk manager, that voice inside of us, right? That is on the one hand, you know, sometimes goading us forward, but more often our risk manager is trying to keep us for acting by sort of signaling all the danger that's going to happen to us. They're trying to keep us safe. So he always talks about this immature relationship with our risk manager and managing that, that formula I just talked about is that is about having a more mature relationship with your risk manager, right? And so while it's all good to kind of visualize the positive and ramp your FOMO, and I certainly recommend recommend it when you're creating goals or when you've made a big choice and you're trying to keep yourself motivated every day. What I often say to people is let's work actively on reducing our fear of failure. And what are the strategies we can use that would help us reduce our fear of failure and allow us to act also? And there are a couple that I strongly recommend. One comes from our favorite risk taker of all time, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Bezos uh, wrote in his in a very famous shareholder letter to investors when he was going public that most decisions Amazon makes, and he says that most decisions we make as people or what we call decisions with two-way doors, right? We often imagine that we make a decision and it's a one-way door. There's no way back. But the vast majority of things we do, right, or try, there's a way back, right? If you say something in a meeting that doesn't work out the way you want, it's not like you can never say anything again. Mm-hmm. You're fired. <laughs> yeah, you're fired. Are you kidding? You said that terrible thing. You know, nobody thought you were smart. That's absolutely ridiculous. If we said, hey, you want to take a new job opportunity and it's a startup, if you're very employable and your current company loves you, it's not like there's not a way back if you go right. and it doesn't work out, right? So the vast majority of things we think about are not one-way doors. They're two-way doors. And so I often advocate, and I advocate certainly in the book, that if you want to have a good relationship with your fear of failure, let's start by not avoiding avoiding what your what those risks are let's name them let's size them and they get sized as big if they're one way doors if they're two way doors they're likely smaller medium sized risks mm-hmm. and go one step further I say, like, imagine the choice after the choice. Imagine you say that thing in a meeting and it doesn't work out. Well, what's the very next thing you do? Imagine you go to that startup and you hate the job. What's the very next move you would make? And the minute you can imagine the choices after the choice, and if you can come up with several, well, that's probably not as large a risk as you think it is. And in imagining what you would do actually helps us confront those fears of failure as opposed to avoiding them. So I often think about that universal risk-taking equation. And while I'm all for FOMO, I actually believe that we all need strategies to sort of look and shrink our fear of failure in order to get us into action. Mm-hmm. And those are some of the things I think about a lot and talk about a lot when I advocate for people to take more risk. And so you say you you advocate for people to take more risk. Is it fair to say that most of us don't take enough risk <laughs> and relatively few of us are wild and reckless? Or, or, or what's your take about the breakdown of the, we'll just say, United States professionals? 
Well, you're asking a question that's near and dear to my heart. If you want to go to the website for the book called choosepossibility.com, you can take a risk quiz, interestingly, to figure out what your natural risk-taking style is. Because I wanted to know the answer to the same question <laughs> as I was writing the book and certainly bringing it to market as we launch it. And so we, we actually created a simple risk survey and then we surveyed the U.S. population, obviously not the entire population, but a sample before putting the risk quiz on LinkedIn and on the site where you can take it. And to your point, what we found is that we named four archetypes for risk. And we found that the vast majority of people taking the risk quiz, like 60%, are what we call contemplators, which is very good at being calculated and measured in laying out the pros and cons of any decision. But where they self-identify as having challenge is in actually making a decision, right? Then these people self-identify saying like, hey, I can look back and I have a decent amount of regret about choices I didn't make and actions I failed to take. So the majority of the population in our risk quiz are contemplators. And then let's think about what comes on either side of a contemplator. A contemplator who is more negative, who sees more easily the cons of any given situation, who's always trying to keep safe and keep away from harm, we call a critic. On the other side of being a contemplator is what we call the calculator, the person who also does the analysis of pros and cons in any big decision and certainly probably does a faster analysis or more efficient analysis on smaller decisions, but is comfortable making a decision within a given time period. So they're always calculating and biased towards making a decision more than the contemplator. And then the last archetype we identified is what we call the change seeker. And you and I probably know lots of change seekers, which are people who are so easy to see opportunity that in fact, they may move very spontaneously. Some would call them reckless, some wouldn't. Some would say that they're the life of the party and the people who never miss an opportunity, even if it costs them over committing or in some ways moving rashly. And so when we look at these four archetypes, and as I said, you can identify which you are by taking the quiz on the site. I think the majority of people certainly are comfortable with the idea of a pros and cons list, but when it comes to action, maybe sit on the sidelines a little bit more than they wish they would. And obviously that's what prompted me to write the book. Okay. Well, so let's talk about some particular strategies and tactics when it comes to doing some decision-making. So I liked how you discussed how we can shrink our fear of failure by, by thinking through, hey, is this a two-way door? If this went south, what would be mm -hmm. the very next step? What, what are some of your other uh, favorite approaches? Or do you have a master framework when you sit down and say, okay, Sukinder, decision time. <laughs> How do you get to your answers? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. First of all, in our risk quiz, I'm a calculator, which means I'm never without my own spreadsheet. Make no mistake. I think of my own relationship with risk as, yes, there's that formula. But to answer your question, I do believe that small for smaller choices, it's about doing the rapid formula right? And moving yourself to action. Because as soon as you realize that a risk is of rather small size, hopefully you can get into action fairly quickly without needing a gigantic spreadsheet. But Believe me, when it comes to bigger choices in my own life, I have a pretty gigantic spreadsheet too. And some of the things that you would find on it might surprise you. So in my frameworks for taking risk and making bigger choices, there are probably two things that I do and I wait in my framework that most people don't wait. When most people create a framework for making a bigger choice, they really do a pros and cons of like what we might think about like how they will execute, right? They say, gosh, like this could go right and this could go wrong. 
but they really act as if the entire risk and thing worth rating are like their own execution ability, right? Like you say, oh, this could go right or this could go wrong if I do this or I fail to do this. In my own risk-taking frameworks, actually, I not only look at how something compares to my goals or my own skills and capabilities, like, gosh, am I likely to succeed or fail in my efforts? But I add two dimensions that I think most people fail to add. Number one is what I call the people factor. So most people try and make a choice sort of on the what of of the thing they're pursuing. So let's put it this way. I want to go to startup. I'm thinking about the what that that startup does. And is that startup likely to be successful or not? Is that a winning idea, right? I often, and this has certainly been something I've learned the hard way in my career, but I've also had the benefit of. I really, in all of my frameworks, I overweight the people I am going to join in any new choice or endeavor. So I call that the, I put the who over the what. Mm -hmm. And that's one big piece of advice I have for people when creating your own framework and doing your own pros and cons list. You have to add and rate the people factor of any dimension. And people say, well, why is that important? I think it's important because many of us have been told to take risks in the direction of our passions, as an example. Like, hey, go overweight, moving towards something that's in the direction of things you enjoy. That's great. But 99% of of our careers and how successful we are on the job are done in collaboration with others, right? With peers, with a boss, with a CEO who might be guiding the direction of a company. So with people who share or don't share our values, so not let alone complement our strengths. And so when I overweight the people, what I'm really overweighting is like, hey, I'll get to have fun in my job or do the things I'm passionate about or good at, dependent on the people I go to work with every day. And if I go to work with extraordinary people, people who have skills I seek to acquire or people whose values fit my own, there's a far better chance that I'm going to enjoy the day-to-day of my job and do my best work. And yes, all the better if it's in the direction of my, let's say, stated passions in terms of topic area. So putting the who over the what is one big factor in my friend frameworks that most people don't really rate enough or rate highly enough when they make their choices. And the other one that I often tell people is missing from their frameworks, and I would add to any framework or pro-con choice, is what I call the things that aren't in your control, the headwinds and tailwinds of any situation. We tend to believe that we go into any situation in what I call the neutral state. Like it's just waiting there for our immense and amazing execution in order for us to be successful, as if that is the only factor at play in things that work and don't work. But if we take the time to rate the situation we're entering, is is it like, does it have momentum and tailwinds? I mean, people often give me a lot of credit for my choices, but my friend, I came to Silicon Valley in 1997. Uh, that was a good time to come to Silicon Valley. (laughs) Like, let me tell you, there's so many tailwinds that if I made a bad choice, I could still pivot into good choices, right? And in fact, that happened to me. My first job in the Valley, I quit in six months. But there was so much opportunity that could pivot into and so many companies that had tailwinds that I had plenty of what we call room to fail, right? And still be successful. Mm -hmm. And so I think objectively rating the situation you're entering? Does it have headwinds or tailwinds? And what does that mean for your ability to execute is a huge other factor in the frameworks I build around any big choice. I like that concept right there, the room to fail. I guess I could just flip it around. As I was contemplating, you know, should I launch this podcast? Oh, it's going to be a lot of work. And hey, I've tried a lot of (laughs) business initiatives that didn't work out. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the things I loved about this as a concept was that there were just so many ways to win. Yep. Financially. I mean, I already yes. knew it was going to be fun talking to people like you about stuff <laughs> yeah. I love. <laughs> of course, of course, right? But I thought th- there's so many ways that this can win, whether it's just from, from sponsorship or selling courses, coaching, training, licensing, and monetizing. Like, th- there's a lot of ways, as opposed yes. to a lot of businesses is all like, well, hopefully people like this thing, yes. <laughs> you know, whether it's a product or service. And then if they don't, that that's kind of all there is to it. Yeah. So room to fail or, or many ways to win is a cool parameter to embrace and to value and to consider. I love it. This comes into like embrace your inner calculator, right? Like lay out all of these things because sometimes, as you know, like one of the things I found in the book is like, if you look at the research, people often make decisions quickly because uncertainty feels so uncomfortable, right? Mm. But when you lay out all of these paths, as you said, all the ways your podcast could monetize, right? Like you're not only ramping your FOMO, you're also in many ways like dealing with your fear of failure, right? You're saying, oh my goodness, here are like the three ways. If this one doesn't work, this one could work. If this one doesn't work, this one could work. So like, I bet you that thought process got you into action by confronting all of these thoughts early and being calculated and taking this risk, not just like a hope and a prayer, right? But laying it out in order to get yourself into action. And so, I, I mean, I love it. Yes. Room to fail all the time. But, you know, room to fail means you you take the time to confront the things that not only you would love about doing this, but the things that you fear, right? And laying out all the possible paths you could pursue. I mean, that's what gets me into action. It's not just sort of dreaming in the abstract. And that was, a, that's a really compelling point right there about folks moving quickly because they don't want to linger in the discomfort of those, the moments of uncertainty. Yes. I think there's, there's some real wisdom there. And so any, any pro tips with regard to if folks were in a position like, ah, I've just been thinking about this too long. Ah, how do you recommend calming the system and, (laughs) or maybe just in general, like when, when emotions are running, are running hot, like to get back to a place of calm, wise rationality. Well, I'll tell you what I do, because I, I certainly love to act and I'm, I'm somebody who makes decisions, relatively speaking, fast. But when it is a weighty decision and or when there is something bothering me, the first thing I do when something is like what I'm like prompted to act quickly, almost too quickly, and I feel myself becoming reckless is I try and step back and ask myself, what am I trying to solve? And often what reveals itself is that there is not a one-stepper but a two-stepper. So first of all, when we're feeling anxious, it's because something in our current situation is maybe feeling threatening or negative to us, right? You know, people who like, let's say, take the first job offer they get. And you say like, well, why are you going to jump into that job? Like, just step back. What are you trying to solve? And when you ask yourself the question, what are you trying to solve in making the decision now? Usually what you find is you're trying to solve in a one-stepper something that's effectively a two-stepper. So what do I mean by that? Let's say your current job sucks. Like you're fighting with your boss. So the first job that comes up, like you're like, I'm going to take that. (laughs) Like that's Mm. the one. Like I'm saying yes on Monday. I would say like, okay, figure out why you want to say yes on Monday. And before you say yes on Monday, figure out what you're trying to solve. So first of all, you're trying to solve your current discomfort at work. work. That might involve going in on Monday and having an honest conversation with your boss about something that's not going right. That is a distinct decision and risk to take from the risk of what job to go to next, right? That's the twofer. Like, number one, solve the current discomfort. Number two, then decide if you were in, quote unquote, a neutral state and trying to, like, pick the best possible job 
choice. Would you pick this one? Or would you now take the time, having solved your immediate discomfort, to go lay out five job choices? Because maybe you're going to find one that's even better. And certainly I say to people like, step back, figure out what you're trying to solve. And if it's a twofer, lay out your two independent goals because they may be solved separately right? And that allows you then, my friend, to set up the next choice, right? That next possibility. And I'm not like, hey, go live forever in uncertainty. Then I'm more in there like, hey, if you were in a neutral place, maybe you would have the time to go figure out the three jobs that would be your dream job. Go have two more conversations and set yourself a time frame to still make the decision. But it doesn't need to be yesterday. Well, I think that is an insight that's applicable in many circumstances, that this isn't a one giant leap, but rather maybe two or three or four steps. You got it. And components. And in, in asking that question, what are you trying to solve? You can see that and, and take appropriate action. And it's what's fun is that you may feel all the more empowered and emboldened and equipped to have that conversation with, with boss. Yes. Because like, I don't know if it's going to go well. It's like, well, hey, if, if it's horrible, yeah, I have at least I got something. I have a bird in the hand. <laughs> yes, absolutely, right? Yeah. But it's just about forcing those things apart when like we're feeling reckless. So like the point is that I think our relationship with risk tends to be risk is for the riskies, risk takers among us. Okay, not true. Risk is a skill that anyone can build. Like point one. And then number two, on this point of like, okay, well, if you want to build those risk-taking muscles, think about this these choices and in increments. You're often not making, as you said, one choice. You often have the opportunity to make two, three, four choices. And you know what that does for us when we know we have the ability to make two, three, or four choices? It frees us from the pressure of one big choice, which is what people think it needs to be one big choice. I call this the myth of the single choice. I'm going to make one big choice and it's going to be either a raging success or an abject failure. And then there's so much pressure on that one choice. The minute you say, like, I have multiple choices and risks to take or choices to make, it really frees us up from this myth of the single choice. And in fact, we can get the compounding benefits of choosing again and again and again. That's beautiful. Well, Sue Kinder, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Well, I think mostly it's what I said. If you think that risk, risk taking is for the riskiest among us, reframe your thinking about what risk really is. It's a small or big choice that you can make multiple times a day, a week, a month, a year that get you into action now and sort of unlock your learning so you can choose again. And it's about this freedom to choose and choose and choose again that really helps us create compounding benefit to the risks we take. Mm, lovely. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? My favorite quote is probably one from the book, which is, when nothing is sure, everything is possible. And so we often think about, as I said, this idea that uncertainty is daunting, but let's just remember, uncertainty is literally the definition of possibility. When nothing is sure, everything is possible. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty awesome place to dwell, right? <laughs> and we don't tend to think of it that way. Yeah, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, one of my favorites is actually, I don't know about you, have you ever read the book Good to Great from Jim Collins? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of my favorite older books, but one of my favorite newer books, in fact, I had it in our book club at StubHub, I made the entire leadership team read it, was uh, this book, Growth Beyond the Hockey Stick from uh, McKinsey, from a set of McKinsey partners. It's one of my favorites. It's a 30-year study of companies that non-linearly outperform over time. And what it really finds, which I think is so fun, is it sort of reinforces or validates through data the research that the companies most prone to failure over a long period of time are companies that fail to take any move. 
rather than companies that made multiple moves, some of which were wrong, actually have a much better chance of what McKinsey calls moving up the power curve to become nonlinear, you know, outsized successes over time in terms of shareholder returns. So failing to move is far more likely to have you what we call go, whereas making multiple moves imperfectly is far more likely to get you to grow. Very neat analogy, obviously, to the book. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? My favorite tool to be awesome at my job, you would laugh, but it's my iPhone notes. When people talk about having like, I always have a plan, right? But I don't, I'm moving all the time. So although I, I like love to have a whiteboard, the reality is my iPhone notes is my whiteboard. If you went into it, you would see notes on like everything from like business ideas to what I need to get done today, to my grocery list, to like tips for what are the things I want to remember to mention on this podcast. So I would say one of my favorite tools is a pretty simple one, iPhone notes. Mm-hmm. All the time. Goes with me all the time. I can erase it, modify it, but it's always there. And a favorite habit? These days it's tennis. I don't know what your favorite COVID habit is, but I have become much more regular as a tennis player and I'm loving it. And it sounds like you may have already shared a couple of these, but is there a particular nugget that you articulate that gets quoted back to you frequently and people are loving? I have a quote I often give people that does get played back to me all the time. It's called, you manage me or I manage you. Which would you prefer? (laughs) And then people are like, what do you mean by that? I often say in leadership talks, okay, like literally, if you're a leader, you have a choice. You can say, you know, you can say to your people, you manage me or I manage you. What would you prefer? And most people presume that the right answer is, well, gee, like I would prefer to manage others. And I say to folks all the time, I'm like, really? I prefer for somebody to manage me. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, no, I really prefer that they manage me. Like, I'm a CEO, right? So if you walk into my office and expect to be managed and I'm an opinionated person, there's a pretty good chance I'm just going to spit out whatever's in my head and tell you to do it. That doesn't mean it's the right answer, right? (laughs) It doesn't, it's also not a super empowering place to be. So if you presume that my job is to manage you, that's not a particularly fun place to be. Now let's reverse it. Now if I say like, gosh, your job is to manage me, that means you likely walk into a meeting with me with an agenda of your own, Yeah, You take control of the conversation. You probably have a problem and a solution you'd like to propose. You've thought it out. You lay it out. Now, guess what that means for me as your your leader or manager? It means that I get to have a really highly leveraged interaction with you where you've clearly thought it through. You get to lay out your vision. I get to respond to it and add to to it my vision and my insights. And then you will leave out my office in 10 minutes versus an hour. You're feeling super empowered. And guess what? I'm feeling pretty leveraged. (laughs) And we both go on to have a better day. So I always say to people like, reverse your thinking on management. If you think the purpose of management is for you to manage down to others, imagine what life looks like when you ask people to manage up to you, what it looks like for them and what it looks like for you. That to me feels like real leverage for both parties. That is a beautiful, a beautiful perspective. And one of my mentors, Victor Chang in episode 500, he said that that's how he would approach his conversations with, with new direct reports. He'd say, uh, so he's the boss. Yes. I work for you. Here's how it works. You tell me what you need, what resources, what decisions I, I need to, to provide to you so that you can do your best work. And then that's that's what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to get out of your way and, and we're going to have great things happen. And it, it's yeah. sort of a, a reframe, but it is lovely. I, I could tell you with, with employees, it is refreshing and wonderful for all of us when they say, hey, Pete, here's what I need from you. I was like, okay, cool. Well, hey, you got it. Is that it? Oh, that was quick. <laughs> it's awesome, right? It's quick and efficient. Now, make no yeah. mistake, your friend sounds uh, pretty graceful and patient. 
My problem is I'm actually impatient and fairly opinionated. So I will say to people, the problem is if you walk in with a blank sheet, you're far more likely to walk out with my sheet. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. It may or may not be, right? Yeah. But the problem is I always have something to say. So I much would rather I would much rather you come in with what you have to say because that is a fun place for me to be as well. And sometimes personalities like mine, like you definitely don't want to be walking, walking out, just presuming that because I have an opinion, it's always the right one. What I really love to do is get into an interaction with someone which is quick, efficient, highly leveraged and fun because we're both learning something from it. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, you can always find me on LinkedIn, uh, just at Sukinder Zincast. You can find me on Twitter, but honestly, I hang out more on LinkedIn because it's a fun place to have career conversations with folks. And certainly, if you are so inspired, you can always pre-order the book, Choose Possibility, on the website, and it comes out August 17th. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say my call to action is take the risk quiz, but more importantly, understand that it doesn't matter what your natural style is. Every single one of us can be what I call a chooser. And so my call to action is be a chooser, like versus kicking the can down the road, make the little choices today that unlock incremental possibility. Well, Sukinder, thank you for this. This is a real treat and I wish you lots of luck in all your possibilities. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciated Sukhinder's take that most things that we think about and choose are not one-way doors. They're not irrevocable, permanent decisions, but rather they're two-way doors. And you could try it out. If it doesn't work out, you know, there may be a little bit of difficulty to backtrack it, but it's not impossible. So I found that useful and reassuring in the midst of stressful decisions about risky potential things. So great stuff from Sukinder. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP695. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.